Before we return to our riveting drama, our sponsor insists that we listen to a radio show about television. I'm Jim Benson, host of A Different Sort, as I direct you toward a galaxy of TV memories guaranteed to leave you spellbound while I present many of the greatest legends in television history on the TV Time Machine, every Wednesday beginning at 4 p.m. right here on World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and with me today is Harold Holzer, Lincoln author and author most recently of a book about one of Lincoln's most important but not best-known speeches, the Cooper Union Address. Harold, thanks again for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Jerry. Uh, when we left a moment ago, we were just starting to talk about Lincoln's speech in February 1860 at the Cooper Union. What was that speech? Well, it was um, the result of an effort by New York uh, Republicans who did not want William Henry Seward, the state's favorite son, to be the candidate of the Republican Party for the presidency. They didn't like him. Uh, he was an upstater, not a downstater. We still have those tensions in New York uh, even now. And um, they believed that in order for the Republican Party, which was rather new in the national field, to win the White House, they would have to nominate a Western man who could not only carry the guaranteed Northeast, but win Indiana, Ohio, and Illinois. Um, states that had customarily voted Democratic in previous elections. So a group in New York, calling themselves the Young Men's Central Republican Union, invited some Western political orators to come east to Brooklyn, actually, to give speeches 
um, and get themselves known in the biggest media center in the country, uh, New York City, then as now. Lincoln was one of those invited. Uh, only by luck, only by, well, luck and procrastination, Lincoln didn't want to speak when they wanted him to speak. So he wound up coming east thinking he, too, was speaking in Brooklyn, but was told upon his arrival that he was speaking at this magnificent new school that had opened in Manhattan called Cooper Union, Peter Cooper's free college for uh, the masses, for men and women, very unusual academy in those days, with a beautiful auditorium uh, that still stands much the way it looked then, a little bit different. Um, and there Lincoln made his New York debut in uh, February 1860, 8 February 27th, with a riveting political lecture um, in which he took on Stephen Douglas and the South and uh, made himself uh, immediately known and uh, much praised in uh, in a city that had really known him only fleetingly and by newspaper accounts of his debates with Douglas two years earlier. Did Lincoln take this very seriously? Did he think of this as a big opportunity? My belief is he took it very seriously indeed. He had never spent as much time or done as much research um, in preparing a speech, and we don't have the manuscript tragically. I'll, I'll explain later what happened to it, but it's 7,500 words in all. Um, you know, and in the days before computers and laptops and all of the things we're now taking for granted, um, and without a secretary or a speechwriter, there was a, a digress, but there was a letter in uh, uh, there was an, a book review in the Wall Street Journal on uh, August 24th, uh, in which the critic who was writing about a JFK book said that Abraham Lincoln also had speechwriters, as did JFK. Um, Lincoln's first inaugural address was drafted by William H. Seward, and I and I wrote a letter to the Wall Street Journal that was published on August 25th. Uh, noting that uh, the, the critic had it backward, that Lincoln, in fact, wrote all of it, and Seward made some suggestions that Lincoln incorporated. It's important to remember. Oh, go ahead. It's important to remember that Lincoln was his own writer. He wrote every word that he that he spoke publicly. Well, and, uh, you mentioned the, the first inaugural, I think, is especially important for that because it's a moment to see how Lincoln did that when Seward wrote the uh, that little coda at the end. He thought Lincoln ought to add it. Yeah, Lincoln did end on a, uh, um, a rather challenging note in his final first inaugural, and Seward suggested uh, that they talk about the better angels of our nature, uh, American hearths and hearthstones with Lincoln. Uh, it was a good sentiment, as I said in the Wall Street Journal, a noble sentiment, but prosaically expressed, and Lincoln transformed it into poetry. So he wasn't only a great writer, he was a great editor, too. Absolutely. But anyway, he, he spent weeks and weeks in the law library while he was practicing law, while he was doing other things, while he was worried about his son spending crazily at school, um, as all our kids do. Jerry, your kids don't yet, but they will, I'm they will. sure. Yes. Um, um, while he was uh, trying to negotiate a political feud in between the mayor of Chicago and the head of the state Republican committee, while he was trying to get the convention placed in Chicago where it would benefit a Western candidate most while he was trying to get the Chicago Press and Tribune to endorse his candidacy, while he's doing all of this, and again, so he's still practicing law by day. I mean, you say, I work a lot. This guy went to the law library and read all of the proceedings of the Constitutional 
conventions, not only national but state conventions, and uh, to try to prove that the founding fathers uh, of the country believed that the federal government could control the spread of slavery, which was the theme of the speech. And that was the fundamental issue dividing the country by the late 1850s. Slavery in all its forms certainly was, and Lincoln's line in the sand, and most moderate Republicans um, who were seen as radical and revolutionary by um, the uh, citizens in states, the white citizens in states who would later form the Confederacy, uh, was that, sla- that slavery ought to be put on the course of ultimate extinction by restricting it to where it existed, and that slavery should not be allowed to spread to the new Western territories as they became states and as they became official territories. Lincoln said absolutely not, and many Southerners thought that this was uh, enough to drive them out of the Union. Did Lincoln rehearse this speech before he gave it? Well, we have various um, we have various eyewitness accounts. Um, I, um, you know, I wrote a book about this, and I'm not sure that. They're all reliable. I, I discuss them in the book, and I offer them, and I let readers make their own judgments. Um, there were people in the law offices that he uh, that he used in Springfield, which uh, where lawyers were always hanging about. Um, Lincoln was so entertaining; it was worth it. And law students were clerking there, who say that Lincoln read parts of it aloud. Now he was a uh, liked to read his speeches aloud. He read his first inaugural address to his family. We know he read the House Divided Address to a group of supporters. Uh, so it's reasonable to believe he read parts of it. I mean, it was over two hours, so it's, it did require quite a, quite a bit of uninterrupted time to do. I think Lincoln made it known, and there were even reports that he used to uh, walk up and down the street uh, with a two-year-old uh, relative on his shoulders, speaking aloud parts of it. He was worried that his voice wouldn't carry in this unknown, actually a church, which is where he thought he was going to speak. Did he did he travel, I want to say, to Kansas uh, uh, before the speech and give similar speeches as if practicing? You certainly can find traces of... Uh, the arguments in uh, in uh, in Cooper Union in his speech in Leavenworth and other places in Kansas around the time of uh, John Brown uh, uh, John Brown's raid and then another another speech around the time of John Brown's execution. It's clearly very much on people's minds at the time. Uh, uh, one of the devices he used in the Cooper Union speech was to address some words to the South, although he knew they weren't listening. In fact, they weren't. The speech was not reprinted anywhere in the South and, and uh, was discussed, and of course in a critical way, only in one newspaper that I've ever found, and that's the Richmond uh, um, the Richmond Whig. Um, but um, um, yes, you can certainly see the development of the argument as he moves, in fact, even before Kansas, as he speaks in Ohio in, uh, in 59 and then, and then in Kansas. So then he travels eastward, very laboriously, give, yeah. To give the speech, as I recall, when when I worked at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, the story was told of how he stopped in Fort Wayne on that momentous journey, uh, long enough to change trains and leave town, never to return again. Uh, long enough to change trains and be recognized at the station. Now he was traveling with his wife's cousin, um, Mrs. Smith, and her two-year-old son. This was not an easy trip. 
Here he finally gets away from his own house and his own kids, and he's stuck with uh, a woman and uh, and a two-year-old through, through all the way to Philadelphia, changing trains all the time. But um, Jerry, you know the, the the newspapers in Fort Wayne, having lived there for so long. But a charming reporter in Fort Wayne wrote an article, a little item, saying, "Mr. Lincoln is among us. He has just passed through town with a woman, not his own wife, who says her name is Mrs. Smith." <laughs> And if, if our listeners find themselves in Fort Wayne and want to see the site of the station where the train changing took place, um, it's now gone, but Mike's Car Wash on Clinton Street, I believe, uh, the, the site where that actually happened. Is, I didn't know that. That's tr- that's interesting. You never took me there. No, it's a, it's a block from the current abandoned railroad station, which was built and abandoned after the old one. <laughs> okay. So uh, you know how urban centers go these days. Yeah, yeah, the railroads are not the center of town anymore. No. So he gets to New York. He discovers he's speaking at the Cooper Union. Right. The expectations uh, must be limited because uh, people know of Lincoln only by by what they've read of him, but they've never seen him. They've never seen him, but he knows now that the others have spoken, that others have have gone into this series. Cassius Marcellus Clay, Tom Corwin, the the wagon boy of of Ohio, but just a couple of those who spoke before he got there, and they were well received. Um, he knows the stakes are high, and and th- this change from Brooklyn to Manhattan is not just uh, a, a change based on um, um, the, the changes, the, the ambiance between Brooklyn Heights and Lower Manhattan. It is going from a church audience. I mean, they weren't necessarily worshiping, but it is. A very particular church, and unlike the railroad depot in Fort Wayne, it still stands. It's Henry Ward Beecher's Plymouth Church, which was, I would say, the soul of the abolitionist movement in the Northeast. Uh, there had been a mock slave auction there where the church parishioners actually contributed to buying a, uh, um, a runaway slave and liberating her very publicly. And the site of Beecher's uh, weekly sermons that were attended by tourists that were so popular and published in the newspapers the following day. Such an important site that Lincoln, rather than rewrite his speech, had to make his way to pay the obligatory uh, visit to, to attend church services there uh, the, the day after he arrived in New York City. So now, as he says, he can't just stay for church supper after the services because he's got to make his speech more secular. So there's a lot of rewriting to do, and he has to do it on Sunday for his Monday speech. So now he gets up before the audience, and having had his picture taken, don't forget that important. That's true. That famous lengthy photograph. He took that big three-quarter length photograph, the most famous of his beardless photos, at Matthew Brady's brand new gallery in uh, uh, in what is now Greenwich, the, the, the very southern end of Greenwich Village, north of Cooper Union. And then he goes and stands up before 1,200 people. He's told to someone he recognized in the crowd to put his hat on a cane and wave it up and down from the back row if he can't hear him, because he's nervous, again, about the audience. It was a long vertical hall with lots of pillars um, in there, and it was actually it's, it's an absolute marvel of acoustics. If I can digress for one more second, when last May, when Sam Waterston recreated the speech for a sold-out house, um, unlike Lincoln uh, in 1860, Law and Order in 2004 is a sellout kind of a proposition. And Absolutely. Sam Waterston is probably much more famous than Abraham Lincoln was when he got to New York. Um, he um, 
um, Sam Waterston wondered whether um, he could do it without a microphone. If Lincoln did, it would be more authentic. And again, he was going to do the whole two-hour speech um, as a. It was just a. He did it as as a celebration of the publication of the book Lincoln and Cooper Union that I'd done. And he stood back from the lectern, the same lectern, by the way, that Lincoln used, still on the stage. And um, he began speaking, and, um, you know, he's got kind of the same kind of a voice that Lincoln had, what you'd call high-pitched uh, and, and and a little bit nasal maybe. But, you know, like the great politicians of the 19th century, Actors have something special in their voices. They come from the chest. They don't come from the mask. And and his voice really carries, unlike mine, for example. And every everything he said, even Sato Vace, could be heard in that hall. So he could have done it without a microphone easily, uh, as Lincoln did. So it's a beautifully constructed hall acoustically. Some Another uh, great American talent that we seem to have lost is making these halls so perfect for, for listeners. So Lincoln now has has had his photo taken, has appeared. He, of course, has no amplification. Right. Uh, who introduced him? Uh, he was introduced by William Cullen Bryant, the poet, uh, who was then the editor of the New York Evening Post, uh, the very progressive Republican, pro-Republican newspaper of New York. And uh, Bryant introduces him, and Lincoln sort of unfolds himself from a low chair, a chair that's too low for him, and um, begins to speak. And for the first ten minutes, if we believe all the reports, um, and the reports of his subsequent addresses uh, in New England, there seemed to be a magical ten-minute mark when Lincoln gave long speeches. For the first ten minutes, people stared in disbelief at his appearance, um, couldn't uh, d- deal with his, his his accent, looked at his boots, couldn't believe how big his feet were or big his hands were. And uh and then after 10 minutes they began to be carried along by the by the the um the argument and by the brilliant way he presented it, by the very plain simple style he had, uh fact driven, logical, logic driven. And you read about this 10 minute mark in, in a lot of reminiscences of all these Cooper Union uh, and Cooper Union der- derived speeches. And that's what happened in New York. One man in the front row said, uh, remembers writing down a note uh, for publication later, old fellow, this won't do, this is New York. And um, after it was over, he threw his hat in the air and turned to someone and said, uh, he's the greatest man since St. Paul. And uh, so he had this magical impact on people. Um, and uh, he had certainly came through in New York. He was an absolute sensation. Well, this, it, it's a remarkable thing that this speech could, could turn an audience around as, as it did. We're going to take a, another short break here on Civil War Talk Radio and return and talk more with Harold Holzer, author of Lincoln's speech at Cooper Union, the words, I'm getting the title not exact, the words that made Abraham, the speech that made Abraham Lincoln president. That's it. There we go. We'll be back and talk more uh, with Harold Holzer about that in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. 